Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Hard Facts, we are joined by Stephen Holler, Chair and Associate Professor of the Department of Physics and Engineering Physics at Fordham University who shares his experiences bringing physics education to bear on issues affecting the local community. Welcome, everyone. I'm so very, very happy to have my friend and colleague and longtime collaborator, Steve Holler, here with us on the podcast. Steve is a professor of physics and currently serving as department chair at the physics department of Fordham. And we worked together in the arts and sciences faculty pedagogy seminar for a while. And one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you, well, there's a lot of reasons we wanted to talk to you, but one of them is that as we headed into the pandemic two years ago now, you were working on a project in the incubator that I was helping facilitate that was about measuring air quality in the Bronx. And it's a citizen science project that brings together Bronx schools and Fordham students. Maybe let's start with the fresh air project, Steve. So can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and what the status is of that and how that fits into your overall work? The Fresh Air Project came out of the incubator, which was uh, an effort to reimagine higher education, right? And how do we uh, how do we engage the community and promote better practices in education? And so the goal was to tackle daunting problems. The group that I wound up working with was focused on trying to educate and do something about the climate crisis, right? How do we how do we address climate change in a community that uh, is not really interested about what's going on, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, but is really concerned about what's impacting them in the present. And so we came up with um, a means for, for introducing and discussing, having that, having that, that conversation through air quality, because the Bronx has uh, some of the worst air quality in the city um, and is, I think, among the top 10 in the country in terms of porous air quality. There are high rates of uh, asthma in the Bronx because of this, um, some of the highest rates in the country. And so this is an immediate problem for, for the community. And so we're gonna we're leveraging the poor air quality and its relation and how it's gonna get worse with, uh, with the changing climate, with the warming environment uh, to educate the community and, and try to affect some change in the community. I give them the data, uh, have them be part of the project the students, uh, the schools, the parents, the, the families, have them all uh, engaged in this project so that they can maybe use this citizen science data and leverage change in their community. And so the project, Fresh Air, Fresh is actually an acronym. It stands for the Fordham Regional Environmental Sensor for Healthy Air. Well, Fresh Air, that's what it stands for. And so that's that's our project. It's we are in schools in the Bronx. We have more slated, and so we are working with uh, the Jonas Bronx Academy uh, on Webster and Fordham Road. We have they have a sensor there. Uh, we have a sensor at All Hallows High School uh, that's down by Yankee Stadium. We installed sensors actually outside of the Bronx, but in northern Manhattan up at Crystal Ray. We have them in our network. There was another school that we had up on Bathgate, Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Unfortunately, the teacher we were working with, her contract wasn't renewed, so she's not there, but our sensors are still there. So we really need to, to reconnect them with them. And then we have, we have probably about 
four or five other schools that I need to email that I've talked to a little bit, Boys Club of New York. Uh, we've been working with uh, Julie Gaffney and the Center for Community Engaged Learning. And so she's been putting us in contact with a with number of uh, schools and organizations. And so the project is continuing. The, uh, the sensors are going out there. We're collecting data. We have students that are involved. Students are actually giving a presentation on fresh air. So you mean Fordham students? So Fordham in addition students. to the K through 12 kids? Yes, Fordham, Fordham students are giving a presentation at Loyola Chicago. Well, it's, a, it's an online conference. So they're, they're presenting a poster next week um, during spring break. So they're giving up their spring break to do That's this. That's great though. And so, so that, was just, that was just submitted the other day the final poster. So, so it's all good. The project is moving along. We are, Usha Sankar in biology has been, you know, really driving and looking for grant opportunities where we can expand this. And so we're looking at NSF, EPA, NOAA, we're looking at grants in those areas. And then we've recently connected with uh, Mark Conti in economics, who has got similar interests in using the same sensors, but for correlating you know, pollution from truck traffic with learning outcomes in schools. And so we are, we are connected. We are also writing grants together and seeking funding. We're connected. Uh, Mar uh, Mark has brought in the Ind Environmental Defense Fund uh, as a wow. collaborator. And we had a talk this morning with an environmental justice organization in the Bronx over in Hunts Point and the New York Civil Liberties Union to try to partner up with for advancing the project. So it's moving, um, it's evolving. And so we're just, you know, we're, we're very happy with the way it's going. Everything about this project makes me so excited. I'm so excited, but, and I'd love to hear a little bit of more granular detail from you. If you can share something about like what your sense is of some of the science teachers in the K through 12 schools you're working with, like what this means for them to partner with you. And then what it means for your Fordham, for our Fordham students to be working on this project. So can you share a little bit about that side of it? I actually spent last summer working with the science team at Jonas Bronk, myself and uh, Nick Urban. Uh, he's a student in the Honors College. Uh, would, we were meeting weekly, I think, in throughout July with the science team over there. There's six, seventh, and eighth grade teachers. Uh, helping them develop a curriculum around around the sensors around the around this program where the students would get involved not only get involved with you know the recording the data from the from the commercial sensor that we have there but we we're putting together kits for them so that they could build little handheld sensors themselves and understand beyond the black box that's just sitting on the the roof of their building and so so we're trying to also promote science literacy and, and, and STEM education in this as well. Of course. And so the students will, are, are, they have these, these kits that we put together that have a little dust sensor, a little microcontroller. So they learn all of the ins and outs of the sensor, how the, the mechanism for how it works. They do, they'll do programming to program the microcontroller to read the data, to output the data, to plotting the data and analyzing, interpreting, you know, what they're seeing with their particle counts, correlating with the, the commercial sensor out there. Actually, the handheld ones that they're they're building, the kits that we put together for Jonas Bronco are little handheld ones that are battery operated, and they can take them out, and the students can bring them home and read in there at various points around the around the neighborhoods as well. So it's not just sort of a stationary device that's sitting there. So that was that was a really good experience. We need to do more of that. But the teachers have been very excited about it. Not just not just at, at Jonas Bronco, we did the curriculum development, but teachers at at Crystal Ray. 
I met with, uh, and I met with their science club and they're, they're going to build a bigger sensor, a bigger version of this. It's more, a little bit more sophisticated, something like the model that I built during the incubator that where it was basically, a, we, we did a PVC pipe for pushing uh, air through over one of these microcontroller sensors that had several different uh, sensors on it, not just for particulate matter, but also for temperature and pressure so that we can get more of a, a, a bigger picture of what's what's happening at the time the, the particles are coming through. Those students, many of them at Crystal Ray are from the Bronx and uh, didn't realize how poor uh, the air quality actually is uh, here. And so when I talked to them about the impacts of asthma on them and the correlation with air quality and, and the, these asthma rates, their jaws just dropped and they just didn't know. And so, and then of course telling them that, hey, it's gonna get worse as the climate warms, yeah. um, that really that really struck struck them. And so they're they're very much interested. The teachers are excited. The teacher at All Hallows has been very, very excited about getting involved with this. He's also working with Julie on another project. And so it's it's been really positive with the with these teachers. And even the even beyond what we've done with the teachers, when we launched the project, we actually had a kickoff webinar that you know, we put together, we actually got the CEO of Purple Air to come on for 20 minutes to, to give a talk about the sensors. Purple Air is the, the manufacturer of the sensors that we're using. So the CEO was on the Zoom call with us, gave an overview of the company, told how the sensor technology was developed, gave a really good talk about, about, about the product and about the interactions with, with the environment, with the communities. Myself and Usha gave, gave some talks about the, the project in general and the health impacts. Uh, and so it was really good. I mean, we, we were on the call for probably about an hour and a half or so. And there were at, at peak, I think there were about 140 people on the call. That's amazing. And so, and they were students from the school, their families. We had teachers from other schools come on. And so it was, uh, it was really good. And our plan is to continue doing these, um, these webinars. We're trying to plan another one for uh, later this month. And then we'll have a we have another one in in May or so, late May, because the students will still be in school. Of course. And and I hope by that time that we can get the students themselves to do some presentations about what they're seeing, their observations, you know, and and, and their correlations, their thoughts about what's happening. So it really is we're really trying to do to do the outreach to the community. And you know, even today's call with with this environmental justice organization. Like I said, they're over in Hunts Point and they do a lot of a lot of community outreach, a lot of engagement, a lot of different activities uh, along the same lines because they've been monitoring air quality uh, in that area for a, for a long time. It's a really good fit for us. And I think they'll help us maintain continuity as students graduate and they move on. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about like why the Bronx has such a poor, has such poor air quality as you mentioned earlier, what are some of the reasons for that? Why, why, why does the Bronx have poor air quality? I think there's, it, it, it's among the lower income communities in the city. And I think there's just the industrial areas in here. Hunts Point is loaded with industrial warehouses where the trucks are constantly coming in and out. Um, large trucks come in for delivery and then all these smaller trucks go out for delivery. That, that, that is leading to a big problem, I think, in the air quality in that area. And I think it's just the, the poor communities are, are, are suffering throughout the city. And so it's not just the Bronx that has it. And even if you looked at the Bronx, there are neighborhoods in the Bronx that actually the air quality is a little bit better. 
you'll look maybe over at Riverdale, it's a little better than, you know, Hunts Point. Over, uh, I think City Island is actually pretty decent, but you can you can tell the demographics of those neighborhoods are different than, say, the South Bronx. And I think that's that's true. You look in other parts of the city that that are suffering the same sorts of poor air quality levels are, you know, northern Manhattan, up in Harlem and, and so on, right? These neighborhoods are also, you know, having very high, very hard particulate counts in there. But average over the whole of Manhattan, you know, it, it's low compared to the incidences of, uh, of asthma, childhood asthma, average over the whole of Manhattan, say, is, is still less than, say, the Bronx, where a larger proportion of the community is being. And I, and I, I do teach a class in the Honors College uh, about climate change. Um, and so we do talk about uh, all, all these various uh, factors, um, not only the science on them, but we talk about the, um, the social impacts. And so it's a, it's a class in justice. And so we do, you know, I, I do science one day and social impacts the other day um, as we meet twice a week. Did you anticipate that you would end up doing the kind of social justice work that you're doing? Did you, are you surprised by it? What, what are your thoughts? I did not anticipate that at all. Like many people, I decided, hey, I was going to, I was going to, I actually started college as an, as an engineer. Um, and then I decided, hey, I want to do, you know, I want to do physics after my first semester in college or the first, the first physics class I took there because I had some really good teachers. And uh, so I switched uh, into physics and, and I had this idea. I was like, oh, I'm going to do astrophysics because many of our students come in, they go, oh, I want to do astrophysics. And I said, yeah, I was like that too. And then I actually started doing some lab work with one of my professors and it was, you know, it was really good. And that's actually defined define the career that I had. I mean, it, you know, it put me, it made me decide, I, I went to grad school to work with a specific person. And so, you know, cause he was working in that same area. I said, okay, I'm going to continue doing this, uh, this aerosol work. And that's, that's what happened. And so, um, so I wound up at Yale and we missed each other by a couple of years, I think. I think uh, that's right. Yeah. But it was great. I mean, I, I think it, you know, I was originally supposed to work on a different project when I, when I started that was, you know, telecommunications related. And one reason or other things happened, I didn't wind up on that project. And that's fine because actually not being on that project, being on what I did really defined my career afterwards. It basically, the project I did work on, the aerosol project, the biosensing, that got me the jobs that I got after grad school. It got me the positions, you know, with the small companies I worked with, with uh, when I worked for the government, it was all based on that work that I did in grad school. And then of course, the experience I gained in that really helped leverage me into the position at Fordham. And so then when I got here, I continued doing some of that same work and it just kind of morphed into the projects I work on started morphing into things that the students became interested in. And so I still do a lot of stuff with the students that is really based on what they're interested in, like the 3D printed prosthetics. They're 3D printing prosthetic limbs because they were interested in this limitless project. Everybody remembers Robert Downey Jr. with the Iron Man hand that he gives to this kid. And so the students, students got interested in that. So I started mentoring them in that. And, you know, it's sort of a natural, I, I think it's a natural outcome of being here at Fordham because the students are interested in these kinds of things. And then my work on the aerosol side, uh, you know, I've, I've continued doing it, but we've moved away from sort of the biosensing aspects to really, you know, understanding aerosols for climate. Uh, some of the work we did with a collaborator in, in Kansas was, you know, centered around, you know, understanding 
optical properties of aerosols for climate modeling, improving climate modeling, because that's one of the big uncertainties in, uh, in the climate models. And so that's, that's some of the stuff we're working towards. And then I just, I'm starting getting back into the aerosol work now and the fresh air is really helping, really helping that. That's so cool. And I love the way you describe with such optimism, you know, kind of unpredicted path toward a specialty, just leading to more and more opportunities. And I'm wondering when you talk to physics majors at Fordham and you're at the undergraduates that you're working with, how you use your own experience of a really rich and pretty varied career path to help them think about what what they might be doing next with a physics major. We get a number, number of students who come in, they really just want to get jobs when they get out. We try to help them. I mean, within the department, we'll use whatever contacts we have to get them into the majority of students are engineering physics. And so they'll look for engineering jobs. Many of the physics majors will actually go out into, well, some go out into careers in teaching, or, but many of them will, act, will go off into grad school. You know, we help them, their research opportunities before they go to grad school. You know, we help them actually identify schools that would be useful for grad school for, you know, what they want to do. I had a student, you know, she got very interested in optics and said, so, well, you want to look at these schools. And so she looked at these schools. She did a winter, a winter program with, with one of them. It was a, like a winter seminar, really liked it, really enjoyed it. And then, you know, she's, she's actually going to Columbia in, in the fall. Um, and even then, I mean, it turns out that, you know, she's going into electrical engineering. The, the chair of the department's a friend of mine, and he was by for a talk. And I said, come on, you have to go out to lunch with him. And so um, you got to come with us to lunch. You need to Absolutely. talk to him. And so we'll do what we can, I think, to put our students together with, with the people that they need to, to talk to you know, or you know, interact with. One of the things that you and I have talked about a lot is the fact that a lot of your teaching is not to majors. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about, I mean, you talk with so much enthusiasm and clearly such passion for mentoring, you know, the K through 12 teachers themselves and how to develop the curriculum, thinking about the middle school and high school students who are working with the sensors, our undergraduates, but you know, there are students who pass through your class who are on their way to medical school and they just have to take physics because you have to take physics to go to medical school. How do you think about that kind of teaching? I teach a lot in the core as well. So, you know, I think a lot about um, the student who's in the room because they're ticking a box as opposed to the student who's in the room who may become a major in my field. So can you talk a little bit about how you think about those things? Sure. Sure. When I, when I teach the, um, the introductory physics class for the non-majors, or specifically the one that's geared towards the pre-health students, I actually enjoy that class a lot because it's such a different, such a different perspective, right? I can do things in that class that, well, I mean, I would try to do these things in my other classes anyway, but I can, I can start to look at how physics is applied in the medical fields. Or, you know, to say, okay, this is what, you know, this is, this is what's happening with your heart. I mean, we, I do an analysis of the heart and say, listen, this is, this is how much energy your heart needs. And we calculate it from basic physics and we get pretty close to it. And I say, well, this is why you need so many calories a day in your diet, because, you know, 140 of them are going to your heart because we just calculated that you need 140 calories for your heart. And so, so we make those, I try to make those connections when I'm doing it, whether it's that, that calculation, EKGs, uh, I'll do an, uh, I'll do an EKG in class. 
you know, and, and if I have my kids there, I will put my kid on the desk and hook them up to the leaves and, and project it. Usually I do it on myself or my blood pressure. I'll do it. We'll talk about blood pressure. So I, I try to make these connections, try to do a lot of, uh, try to do demonstrations when I can, um, but also make the connections to things they're interested in because otherwise it is just checking a box and they're not really seeing how applicable it is to what they want to do, even though what they want to do is become a doctor. And they don't think that it's, it's really, they don't see the connections. And, and in fact, a number of students have come back to me afterwards who have gone to med school and said, you know, I, I use more physics in med school. I learned more about what I need to do in, in these med school classes and these, or they were in these, even in these, these other graduate programs that are medically oriented, they've learned a lot more, or they found more utility in what I taught them from the general physics than they did in some of their biology classes. Because it's when they get into the med school, they're actually their teachers are actually actually doing more physics. They're actually teaching them a little bit more physics, um, not necessarily at the same level that that we would do it. But these concepts are coming up, and they're they're important. They're important for for a number of different disciplines in uh, in, in medical school. It's really that's really interesting, and it seems such a shame that that's invisible to so many undergrads, right? That it, that of course physics would be relevant and would continue to be valuable. I mean, of course, many disciplines are relevant and continue to be valuable, especially in a profession like medicine, where you're working at so many different levels. I mean, I would argue literature is really valuable for the practice of medicine. You know, a certain kind of competency with storytelling really matters with talking to patients. But, you know, a lot of traditional undergrads think, you know, biology, it's only biology, maybe a skosh of chemistry just for good measure. And that's all that I need to do to become a doctor. And there's so much more to the, to the job. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the, the medical field is, has realize that there needs to be more done where they're, they're introducing, uh, I think all the students are taking psychology and and there might be a, um, there might be, there's a sociology requirement as well, right? Because I think they want to improve bedside matter. A lot of these doctors are just, they may be really smart in biology and chemistry and they can get through the curriculum, but they are terrible with interacting with people. If I can go back um, just to return to this question of the kind of I guess public interest science that Fresh Air is doing to to think about as a scientist who's a trained physicist working in that field out in the community, what's the next step in terms of or the boundary between the data collection and then some kind of advocacy for change? I mean, is that something that you and the students talk about? Like, okay, now that we know this is happening, that there is some kind of environmental injustice that's being done now what have you kind of thought about that at all in the in the project we we've we've talked about trying to get them to uh communicate with their legislators and bring to them this this data that we that we have right students are now collecting the data it's not coming from me right they're collecting data they're doing the analysis i'm I'm assisting them right or our students are assisting them they're going to bring it to their to their legislators. They're going to bring it to their representatives and say, "Listen, this is this is it. These are the hard facts. We know anecdotally, we know that it's problematic, but without the hard data, what do you do? Right? I mean, now you have evidence to back it up. And you know, Usha's been great. She's been talking to the hospitals. Um, I think she's got a connection at Montefiore. 
We've been talking with, with Barnabas, trying to partner with them. Uh, we're planning on partnering with them. And so we'd actually get the, the clinical side, you know, the analysis on the clinical side to go with our, our, our physical data to make correlations, right? And then to look at this so that we can bring it to somebody and say, listen, this is, this is the problem. This is the correlation. And then the stuff that we're going to do with Mark, you know, he wants to, he wants to look at learning outcomes in schools based on, on ambient pollution. How do you think about when you walk into a physics classroom as a white man, making sure that students in the room who aren't white men think I could, I like this, I'm good at this and I might want to major in this. And has that changed in the past couple of years in, in how you're introducing the material, how you're teaching, how you're thinking about any of that stuff? Our department is something like 40% female uh, in terms of students and about 36% uh, of underrepresented races and ethnicities. And so overall, that's not terrible. That's, that's larger than the, I think the national uh, averages in, in physics. Although, you know, we think about, we're, we are thinking about these things, the, the societies, we look to guidance to the professional societies on these, uh, on these issues as well. And so the American Physical Society has put together a guide for effective practices for physics programs that addresses some of these diversity issues, addresses, you know, hiring issues, addresses, you know, how retention uh, issues. And then the American Institute of Physics had put out a report on the, it's called the Team Up Project. And it was um, the task force to elevate African-American representation in undergraduate physics and astronomy. And so these are, these are documents put out by the professional studies that we're using uh, to try to improve recruitment, improve retention. Some of the issues are systemic though. How does racism come up in, in, in physics? And from a physics standpoint, the equations are race ignorant, right? But I think within the discipline, it's, uh, it's, it's more of a uh, systemic uh, opportunistic racism that really happens earlier on where students are not trained well enough before they come say to college before i see them where you know they're coming they're coming from schools that are not uh properly equipped they don't have uh they don't have good maybe they don't have good math instruction and so they're weak in that that aspect of it so when they do come to us and they want to be a physics major, they, they're, they're a little weaker. They could be, uh, some students could be weaker in certain areas because they lack their, their, their parents couldn't pay for private tutors or they didn't have, their schools didn't have this extra uh, work that went on afterwards. There's and no so lab, be, there's no robotics club. No, right, exactly. I mean. Uh, so what, how do you think about that when you think about, you know, how your department participates in the core? Like, are you, do you try and figure out ways to teach freshman seminars? I, you know, teaching in the honors college, that's a, that, that might be a strategy. I've been teaching in the honors college. I, I do, I co-teach one of the STEM, the STEM one class, mm -hmm. uh, where I've been doing it for the last, you know, three years or so. I do the, I've been doing the justice class for the last couple of years. That's tends to be at the sophomore level. I meet with students. I do, I do freshman advising. When students come to me, they want to do something. I say, what are you interested in? I don't say, oh, here's a project for you. Right. I say, what are you interested in? 
let's see if we can find a project that fits what you're going to because that's that's actually one of the the benefits of, of of fordham that i found is that i i don't have it's not this but it's not this publish or perish kind of model where i have to be hyper focused on one specific area and become the world expert in that area right i've actually had the freedom to do a bunch of the different things that i want to do or pursue things that students are interested in we actually see that outside of the classroom too here because Fordham has a chapter for engineers that have orders. And so the student, it, I, I, I'm their faculty advisor, but it's um, largely hands off. But they, you know, they find projects that they want to work on and they, they interact with the communities, they interact with engineers, they interact with the national chapter, uh, the national organization, and, and they, they do some project. They, they were building fish ponds in Uganda uh, up until a few years ago. Now, I, I just went with them on a site visit last weekend where they're going to build a retaining wall on a farm up in uh, Connecticut. So they're designing the project. They met with the engineers. So they got, they got this hands-on learning. And that's where I think, you know, they're, they're really, they're, some of the students, a lot of the students that I, that I see, well, maybe not a lot, but uh, a number of the students that I see, they may not be the strongest in the classroom, but then when you put them in that environment, where it's it's all hands on and they you know, they get to do something. That's where they really shine. I always like to ask people as a last question before we let them go, to share story of a teacher that's mattered to you. And this can be your dissertation advisor. It might be your kindergarten teacher. It can be any teacher. But I'm very curious to know, especially since you've had such a heterogeneous career to get here who you might want to lift up as someone that's been important in your thinking about what it means to be a physics professor. I've had actually three teachers, I think, that have, that have really defined where I wound up. One was my, my high school physics teacher. And, you know, he was, he was great. And I still, I still tell stories about him to this day in class. I've actually, I reconnected with him. I'd say reconnected, but it was like 10 years ago. Because what, what happened is I, I went and did the summer program and when I came back, he had left to go finish his PhD and I never saw him again. So it was unfortunate. But now, you know, I, I wound up reconnecting because somebody else I was working with, they wrote a paper together. And I'm like, you know, PJ. And he goes, yeah. And then I found out where he was. So he's over at Bergen Community College now. And he's like the dean or something over there. Um, so that's PJ Ricardo was a great, great physics teacher. Um, I didn't have him in chemistry, but I've heard he was really great in chemistry too. When I got to college, my... My second semester, I was taking physics one, and it was uh, Lorcan Folan. He was he was my intro physics teacher there, and I just his class was great, and it was it was it was the reason I decided to switch from aerospace engineering to physics. And then after that, um, once I had switched over, I wound up maybe a year or two later working with my undergraduate advisor Steve Arnold, who was actually Lorcan's. PhD advisor. He's Steve is Steve is brilliant. He's he's got experimental brilliance. He's got theoretical brilliance. He's he's just like got everything. And he really, you know, really defined, you know, I, I worked with him. I still work with him. We still collaborate to this day. I saw him a couple months ago. I stopped down to, to visit him. I'll probably go see him in the next week or two to see what's going on. Those three, right? PJ Ricardo, Warkin Fullen, and Steve Arnold. Are probably the three that defined, you know, who I am and where 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 I've been. That's great. What a great tribute to them. And 
how wonderful that you've got ongoing relationships with at least a couple of them. That's, that's not common and it's really lucky for both of you. Right. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So Steve, thanks so much for your time and thanks for talking to us. I'm so proud to be your colleague and really glad to hear about your work. So thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks for having me guys. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.